It's a book that has some ideas that are intended to provoke. So the chances are, if you have, from a different perspective, some kind of challenging perspective or some critical response to what I'm presenting, then it's, it's most definitely well-placed, and I very much invite that kind of robust debate and conversation. The book is really trying to have two conversations and tell two stories at the same time. One which is really about refugees and migration, and one which is about global governance and international institutions. In relation to the first, what I'm really trying to do is look at the changing nature of cross-border displacement in the 21st century and ask what that means for who should have access to asylum, who should have a human rights-based entitlement to not be forcibly returned to their country of origin in a world that's fundamentally different from that into which the original refugee category was conceived. At a second level, though, it's asking a question of arguably wider relevance about global governance. And that question is to ask under what conditions do old institutional frameworks at the international level adapt and adjust to new sets of circumstances and new contexts. The refugee regime around the 1951 convention and the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, were created at a particular moment of history. And like many United Nations organizations, they don't cease to exist, they're not recreated, they're not formally reinvented. But when do those institutions adjust? When do they adapt? When do they cater for these new circumstances? And when do they simply fail to adapt? So those are the two slightly different questions that I'm asking, one which is slightly more empirically driven, one which reflects my political science and international relations perspective. By way of general background, there's a general assumption that states have primary responsibility for ensuring the fundamental rights of their own citizens. But sometimes the assumed relationship between states and their populations breaks down and people are forced to flee across international borders in order to get access to those fundamental rights. A form of substitute or surrogate protection is required. And the underlying purpose of the refugee regime based around these two elements, an international treaty, the 1951 Refugee Convention, and an international organization, UNHCR, was designed to fill that gap, to make sure that people could access substitute protection where they needed to as a last resort. But that refugee regime was really a product of its era and geographical context. It was created for post-Second World War Europe, it was created to address the aftermath of the Holocaust and the start of the Cold War context. And hence, it defined a refugee in a very particular way as somebody fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of race, religion, nationality, or membership of a social group. And that idea of individualized persecution meant that the refugee and people hence entitled to asylum were defined relatively narrowly. Of course, the drafters recognized, and this is reflected in the travaux préparatoires for the convention, that this would need to be a living instrument, that the regime could and should adapt to new contexts and circumstances through jurisprudence within particular uh, states and through supplementary agreements to the 1951 convention. But the reality has been that the regime has adapted relatively slowly. Um, it's changed comparatively little since those early days. We have some regional supplementary frameworks. We have jurisprudence adapting the legal understanding and interpretation of persecution. 
but it really still reflects a lot of that early emphasis of the 1950s. In recent years, there's been a, a discourse that's emerged around so-called new drivers of displacement. And this is the language that's been used by Antonio Guterres, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, to highlight the changing nature of cross-border displacement, to suggest that generalized violence, food insecurity, weak governance, climate change, environmental degradation, all potentially mean that the people crossing international borders on humanitarian grounds today are not the same kinds of people that were crossing borders on those grounds in the Cold War context. But this debate is quite problematic in a whole variety of ways. In particular, one of the focal points of that debate has been on so-called climate change refugees or environmental displacement. And that's been really the emphasis of the institutional and political debate, to start questioning how can we supplement what was created in the 1950s with an emphasis on environmental displacement. And as a starting point, I argue that that's problematic for at least two reasons. The first reason is that attribution of most displacement to any single cause, let alone the environment, is almost impossible. With very few exceptions, which are also problematic, such as sinking islands in the South Pacific or very rapid onset displacement, it's very hard to attribute movements across borders specifically to a monocausal environmental driver. So siloing migration within an environmental box has a range of elements that are problematic from an attribution perspective. But secondly and more importantly, I argue that it's irrelevant to attribute a cause if what we're concerned about is identifying people with a human rights-based entitlement to cross a border. What I argue is that what should matter in that context is not the particular cause of movement, whether persecution or the environment or anything else, but the threshold of rights, which when unavailable in the country of origin, require someone to cross a border as a last resort. So what should matter in thinking about this problem isn't any particular cause, it's the rights and the threshold of rights which, when unavailable in the country of origin, require border crossing. That's, that's what I argue normatively should be the question that drives how we think about that entitlement, rights rather than causes. So that's a premise for the kind of basic framework that I set up, which is a sort of both a normative framework and an analytical framework based on those normative premises. And one of the ways in which I think about the evolution of cross-border movements is that the institutional framework that is dominant focuses on protecting people who are fleeing persecution, but we have a shift from factors that relate to persecution to those that are linked to weak governance. So irrespective of what the proximate cause of movement might be, environmental, food insecurity, or otherwise, what means that people actually need to cross a border as a last resort is the absence of strong governance in the country of origin. You can have an environmental catastrophe like Katrina in the United States, but a government like the United States is able to restitute and provide remedy for those gaps in protection, whereas a much weaker state, because of weak governance, may be unable to do that. Um, if there's a famine or drought in south-central Somalia, it means that people are compelled to cross borders in search of that kind of protection. And this diagram is, or this table is intended to illustrate that shift to say 
the shift has been from people fleeing acts by the state in terms of civil and political rights violations towards more and more people fleeing omissions by the state, the inability or unwillingness of states to protect um, or to mitigate serious threats to human security. We arguably have an empirical trend with a declining number of repressive states, but an increase in fragile and weak states, unable or unwilling to mitigate serious threats. But there's a big bifurcation in the nature of the institutional frameworks that protect these two sets of people. For those fleeing persecution, we have a regime characterized by legal precision. The 1951 Refugee Convention is relatively clear. For those fleeing deprivation, we have legal imprecision and ambiguity at the global level. There are a series of regional conventions that supplement the 1951 Convention. The 1969 OAU Convention for the Africa region, the 1984 Cartagena Declaration for the Americas, for the Latin America, and the 2004 and recently updated European Council Directive supplement the 1951 Convention to protect some people fleeing deprivation. The OAU Convention, for instance, protects people fleeing serious disturbances to public order, in theory at least. The Cartagena Declaration protects people fleeing generalised violence. The European Council Directive ensures that people fleeing torture, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment are not necessarily going to be returned to their country of origin. And human rights law has been invoked as a source of complementary protection to fill some of those gaps. But there are a whole range of ways in which that still provides incomplete coverage, both because the practice of implementation of some of those treaties like the OAU Convention is extremely patchy and limited, but also because they're regionally highly selective and the full implications of human rights law haven't been implemented or enacted through state jurisprudence. So the consequence of that is around the world we have relatively high consistency in protection of people fleeing persecution. I say relatively because obviously the way in which the 51 Convention is implemented varies massively and is problematic. But in contrast, those fleeing deprivation face responses that are determined very inconsistently, and as I'll argue, their response is based on politics rather than law. So our international law is a strong determinant of who gets protection of those fleeing persecution. It's mainly about politics and discretion at the national and local level that determines whether people fleeing very serious thresholds of uh, human rights deprivations get access to protection. So to make sense of this, and to make sense of how we can think about this broad, broad, empirically identified problem, I introduced the working concept of survival migration. And the definition I give for that is persons who are outside their country of origin because of an existential threat to which they have no access to a domestic remedy or resolution. The purpose of that isn't to introduce a neologism for its own sake. It's not to conjure into existence a new ontology. It's really to articulate the underlying purpose, underlying normative purpose of the refugee regime and render visible the gaps between that normative purpose and its practice in the contemporary world. And so it's a definition that has three parts. Firstly, it suggests that people are outside their country of origin. And this is important because it highlights that they have access to the international community or other states, and the international community has access to them. 
Secondly, it highlights that they face some kind of existential threat. And by that, I don't just mean a threat to the right to life, but I mean something that compromises the core elements of human dignity, that we wouldn't accept human beings having to, to live with in their day-to-day -day life. The way I ground that is in the concept of basic rights, developed by Henry Hsu, the political theorist, and applied to the refugee context by Andrew Shacknow. And a basic right is a right without which it's impossible to enjoy any other right. So for Shu, there are three basic rights, basic liberty, basic security, and basic subsistence. And at the moment, the existing refugee framework protects some people fleeing certain forms of basic security and basic liberty rights violations. But it does nothing to provide coverage and protection for people fleeing the absence of basic subsistence. So you can be starving to death, but the existing regime won't protect you if you're fleeing that source of basic right. The third element of this definition is the absence of a domestic remedy or resolution. So it's highlighting that within this status framework, um, if there's a failure to provide protection within the country of origin, that requires, as a last resort, border crossing. So to make this sort of simple and to add clarity, what this set of circles is intended to illustrate is that in this working definition, all refugees are survival migrants, but not all survival migrants are refugees. All survival migrants are international migrants, not all international migrants are conceptually survival migrants. But what's important about this diagram is the inner circle that divides the line between refugees and survival migrants. Because what's important is that in theory, all survival migrants could be recognized as refugees. There are parts of the world in which this line is and could be this outer line. There's nothing inherent to the 1951 convention that means that this wider category can't be subsumed and recognized in the practice of states as refugees. They could all conceptually be refugees, and everyone that fits this definition could fit the 1951 convention interpretation. There's nothing stopping that. But what's interesting about the regime is that that doesn't play out in practice. What happens in practice is there's massive variation in how big this gap is and the extent to which the refugee regime stretches and expands to subsume that wider population. And that, in a way, is the question that guides my research. Where and under what conditions does this refugee category as a legal institutional category expand to protect this wider population and where and under what conditions does it fail to do so? So empirically, to unpack that, I looked at three basic research questions in relation to six empirical cases. I asked firstly, who today is fleeing fragile states and why? Secondly, what are post-state institutional responses to those populations, and alongside that, what are international institutional responses? And thirdly, how can we explain those responses? Are they guided by the rule of law or politics? And if so, whose politics shapes those responses? And I look at three populations in six host countries, um, Zimbabweans, Congolese from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Somalis in particular neighboring states, um, Zimbabweans in South Africa and Botswana, Congolese and Angola and Tanzania, and Somalis in Kenya and Yemen. 
So it's exclusively focused on the African context, which help keeps, helps to keep a number of factors constant. Of course, in the African context, there is a regional refugee framework, the OAU convention framework. But what's interesting is how little that plays out and how little it's actually invoked by many of these states. Part of the reason for the selection of those six cases is they vary significantly in the extent to which the refugee regime adapts to protect those populations. So in two of the cases that I look at, Angola and Botswana, the refugee regime fails to protect people fleeing very serious thresholds of human rights deprivations. At the opposite end of the spectrum, there's a degree of stretching of the regime to protect survival migrants who fall outside the classic 51 convention definition, Kenya and Tanzania. And in the middle, there's a sort of intermediate ad hoc muddle through response by South Africa and Yemen. And so it's capturing that variation that led me in part to select those cases because the, the question I was interested in exploring was institutionally, how do we understand this kind of variation in response. And it's important to note, though, that none of these cases are good cases. None of them, from a human rights perspective, are ideal cases in which everyone gets access to their rights. They're simply exhibiting variation in, in a way, the degree of badness and non-stretching, if you take that normative perspective as a starting point. So what I want to do now is shift from that framework to the empirics and give you some texture of the six stories that I tell in the book around these six cases of flight and institutional response, starting with the case that got me into this question um, through an original preliminary field trip to South Africa um, in 2008. Uh, and it was an interesting case because at the time, UNHCR was faced with a large-scale influx of Zimbabweans fleeing Robert Mugabe's regime and didn't know how to categorize these people. They were referred to by UNHCR as in a neither-nor situation, not being refugees in the 51 convention sense, but not being voluntary economic migrants. And in the words of one um, human rights NGO activist in South Africa, these were people fleeing the economic consequences of the political situation rather than um, the political situation per se. So they weren't fleeing persecution, but they were fleeing the consequences of politics with economic ramifications. And without sort of unpacking the political history of Zimbabwe, since land reform was introduced in 2000, a series of factors had coalesced, international sanctions, capital flight, agricultural collapse, hyperinflation, leading to large-scale economic collapse and the collapse of the institutions of state. Uh, in Shona, it was referred to as a kikia-kia economy. By the, not the last round of elections, but the previous round of elections in 2008, um, a quarter of the world's asylum seekers were Zimbabwean asylum seekers, uh, the majority of whom were in South Africa. And the number of Zimbabweans crossing into South Africa, although contested, is one of the largest exoduses um, of the 21st century. It's now been eclipsed by Syria, but after Syria, it's probably the second largest refugee movement of the 21st century. But South Africa's response wasn't what one would imagine for a democratic state, the signatory of international conventions, to a desperate population fleeing across borders. 
estimates of the numbers they received are blurred because it's informal movement, but even the government acknowledges that it received between one and two million Zimbabweans between 2000 and 2009. Due to a quirk in South Africa's immigration and asylum legislation, all Zimbabweans were allowed to access South African territory. South Africa has a self-settlement policy. It allows all asylum seekers, anybody who wants to claim asylum, to access the territory, get access to a permit called an asylum seeker permit, wait on the territory, and have the right to work pending bureaucratic process called refugee status determination. But the problem was that in spite of the conditions they were fleeing, less than 10% were ultimately recognized as refugees through RSD. And the majority, if rounded up and detained by police, would face detention and subsequent deportation. So in 2007 and 2008, South Africa, at the peak of the crisis, was deporting 300,000 Zimbabweans a year back across the border to Zimbabwe. And it was detaining them in appalling conditions in the Lindela Detention Center in Joburg and the SMG Detention Center on the border with Zimbabwe. South Africa did invoke a moratorium on the deportation of Zimbabweans between May 2009 and January 2011 before resuming those deportations. And so, as a political scientist, this begs the question that I asked through the cases of why do we explain this non-recognition? But also in the South African case, why is this period of moratorium? What shifts? What changes? The way I tell the story is by thinking about how the politics plays out at the national level. And there were similar factors that underlie both the restrictionist response but also arguably that period of moratorium that come from the incentives provided by both domestic politics and the international context. Internationally, one of the factors that was quite important was the South African government's bilateral relationship with Zimbabwe. Under Thabo Mbeki, Mbeki had a close personal relationship with Mugabe. Um, the South African government was the designated SADC broker in the development of the power sharing agreement in Zimbabwe and South Africa, particularly Mbeki, didn't want to be seen to be explicitly criticizing Mugabe by recognizing these people as refugees, the sort of condemnatory symbolic function of refugee status. But with the creation of uh, power sharing within Zimbabwe from 2009 onwards, with the election of Zuma in South Africa, that relationship shifted, and so a moratorium became possible without being seen to be condemning Mugabe per se, but having Spangirai and the MDC as part of that government changed the focus. At a domestic political level, one of the sources of restriction was rising xenophobia that peaked with xenophobic violence across townships in May 2008, particularly in Joburg. But thereafter, there was a backlash against that xenophobic violence, and there was a real attempt to shift that xenophobic rhetoric towards immigrants in South Africa. And so those two shifts arguably contributed to changing the environment and making that moratorium possible. But the inability of the government to achieve coherence meant that implementation of those more liberal responses was extremely fragmented, differences between Department of Homeland Affairs and Department of Foreign Affairs, for instance. The international community's response during all this was extraordinarily passive UNHCR didn't want to criticize the South African government. It had extremely limited capacity. And when we spoke to, for instance, the UNHCR representative, Pretoria, his response was, 
well, we've got enough people to deal with already. If we start thinking about these people as though they're refugees, we simply won't have the capacity. So there was very weak regional leadership. And UNHCR had a whole variety of options for critiquing the government. It could have said, you've signed and ratified the OAU Refugee Convention. It has a clause that says refugees can be people fleeing a serious disturbance to public disorder. And yet, by UNHCR's own evaluation of the situation's recognition, they simply failed to do that. Another reason for that was, of course, UNHCR has to work in Zimbabwe. It had to manage IDP camps in Zimbabwe. It had to run refugee camps to protect the Congolese. So it didn't want to stick its neck out and condemn the South African government. There were also, of course, Zimbabweans in Botswana. And what's interesting about that context is that it's obviously a much smaller number in absolute terms. There were some 40 to 100,000 Zimbabweans in the country at the peak of the crisis. But against the backdrop of an overall population of around 1.9 million, is still a significant number. And Botswana adopted what's been described by uh, researchers at the University of Bifortisran as the most exclusionary policy towards Zimbabweans in Southern Africa. It, for instance, has spent more money on deportations and border control than any other country in the region bar South Africa. In its framework, it effectively triaged people between the asylum system, based on the 1951 convention, and being illegal migrants. Those that entered the asylum system had to go into detention, and then onwards to a single refugee camp, the Dukwe refugee camp. And the rest were forced to stay outside the asylum system, where they faced exploitation and deportation. So the response is characterized by a very stark response. Either you're a 51 Convention refugee, or you are forced to be deported back to Zimbabwe. So why this response? Well, at the national level, um, the argument the government put was they were basically adhering to their national legal framework. A refugee means something under international law, they stick by that, they adhere to it and respect it. And they were pressured by rising xenophobia, particularly xenophobic attitudes recognized in opinion polls um, and comment pieces by domestic scholars, particularly directed towards um, Zimbabweans. And the international community had very little influence over Botswana. It was seen as sort of a middle-income country, and hence not being dependent upon international assistance, the room for leverage by international organizations was really limited. The international community, therefore, based around UNHCR, had very little to say in response to this, this limited framework of detention and deportation. And this was exemplified by, in 2009, the UNHCR representative at the time was actually expelled from the country. He wasn't expelled because he criticized the Zimbabwean response. He was expelled because he criticized the response to Somalis. And the government asked him to leave. Rather than kick up a fuss, UNHCR covered up the whole situation, didn't want to draw attention to it, and asked the rep to just leave quietly and replaced him. The next population I look at in the book is Congolese from two neglected provinces of the DRC, two of the southern provinces, Bandundu and Western Kassai. And this is a story that has been really neglected in academia, neglected in advocacy and policy discussion, but it's a really important one to be aware of. And it highlights the situation of many people fleeing the southern provinces of the DRC across the border into Angola. These southern provinces aren't conflict-ridden. 
Um, they're not characterized by the violence that takes place in the east of the DRC. But they have um, extreme food insecurity, some of the highest levels of infant mortality and malnutrition in the whole of the DRC, extremely little infrastructure. And historically, people who have lived in those areas have been dependent for livelihood strategies upon the ability to cross extremely porous borders to seek out a living in the Lunda Norte and Lunda Sul regions of Angola. And that was accepted during a lot of the civil war period in Angola. People were able to cross the border, and those areas of Angola were dominated by uh, the UNITA rebel group that welcomed Congolese uh, as a supportive influence, as a source of labor. With the end of the civil war in 2002, and the creation of the MPLA government in Luanda, um, people as Congolese who were previously associated with UNITA weren't welcome on the territory. They were identified as a sort of economic threat, digging up in an artisanal and informal way diamonds from diamond mines, the concessions for which had been given to multinational corporations or the national parastatal. And so these people who were crossing borders faced roundup and detention. The conditions of deportation have been absolutely atrocious. Um, very serious systematic human rights violations based on um, serious sex and gender-based violence, systematic gang rape, um, extrajudicial killings by agents of the state, including soldiers, the police, private security companies associated with the multinational corporations. <coughs> And between 2003 and 9, there were four major waves of these deportations. Um, OCHA estimates around 400,000 were deported. Um, and there's been very little documentation of the conditions of deportation, although Médecins Sans Frontières managed to set up mobile clinics providing, for instance, HIV post-exposure prophylaxis on the other side of the border. And in doing so, they took certain witness statements, témoignages, that documented some of these very serious systematic, arguably crimes against humanity. The waves of deportation coincided with either elections at the national level or the regional level to remove potential UNITA supporters, or with um, particular waves of economic activity um, linked to the involvement of multinational corporations. And it led to a humanitarian crisis along the border that's ongoing today. There may no longer be continuing waves, but there's a sort of chronic deportation cycle and the government, with some criticism, has cut back on the worst human rights violations, but it's continued to treat uh, Congolese migrants in a very problematic way. So why have there been these, these particular responses? Well, the Angolan government, has, as the MPLA government, has really tried to take control over these UNITA-dominated areas um, for purposes of political control. And it's not surprising, therefore, that the waves have correlated with elections. Also, what's been notable is the DRC hasn't criticised Angola particularly for these deportations. It's really recognised that um, Joseph Kabila's government in Kinshasa has been dependent upon Eduardo dos Santos for bilateral support. His immediate um, guard has been mainly Angolans provided by the Angolan state. And so the bilateral relationship has been completely asymmetrical and there's been almost no pushback to say stop doing this to our citizens. The international community, meanwhile, has been pretty silent. Um, the problem is that everybody said this falls between mandates. UNHCR said these people aren't refugees, therefore they're not our problem. 
Archer has said, yes, it's a problem, but there are worse problems in the east of the DRC. Um, and they've got into sort of bean counting over number of rapes and suggested this therefore isn't a significant problem. Um, IOM has said, we'd love to get involved if someone will write us a check, but no one's written a check. Um, so it's really fallen between the stalls of different organizations' mandates, leaving the church, the Red Cross working out of Kinshasa, mm. and a small number of NGOs like MSF to really stretch the boundaries of their own mandates to fill some of those gaps in the border areas. There's been a big political economy behind this as well, because a lot of the governments that have had some awareness of what's going on have chosen to remain fairly quiet, um, largely because of strong relationships over oil or diamonds um, with, with the government in Angola. And some of the multinational corporations have probably had very strong um, lobby-based activism to silence some of this. And Of course, like Botswana, Angola is a middle-income country hasn't faced the leverage that comes from international assistance. The next case I look at is an entirely different group of Congolese, mainly from South Kivu, um, crossing the border into Tanzania. And it focuses on those populations that fled the Congo Wars between 96 and 2003, but also those that have fled across Lake Tanganyika to Tanzania subsequently. And what's interesting is the different treatment of those two populations. That in Tanzania, there's been a continued protection of people who fled between 96 and 2003 as refugees. They've been entitled to remain in refugee camps. They've continued to receive national protection and international assistance. There's been no call for cessation for them to have to go back. Repatriation has been um, encouraged but not actively promoted in the language of UNHCR. But on the other hand, and slightly paradoxically, new arrivals across Lake Tanganyika have been rounded up, detained, put back on boats, and sent back to South Kivu. So amongst a population that, if sent back, would face very similar circumstances, not necessarily persecution under the 1951 convention, but generalized violence, instability, the absence of infrastructure, the absence of basic rights, there's been this massively differentiated response. The argument given by the head of UNHCR's field office in the region, Kasulu, um, said, for instance, that the reason they don't send existing refugees back is, quote, the reason why they left may not exist anymore, but the general situation, e.g. health and education, and the constant fear, make me believe that those that stay have to stay. So there's been an acknowledgement that it would be wrong to send those already there back, but on the other hand, the government has rounded up and detained new arrivals back to the same situation. So why this differential response? Why this apparent paradox? Well, from a political perspective, what comes out is that there are different governance structures around um, the regional governance in Kigoma and the national governments, governance surrounding refugee policy and national refugee responses. Those in the refugee camp near Agusu for the Congolese in Tanzania are subject to governance out of Dar es Salaam with links to the international community. Those people arriving in Kigoma, the western province of Tanzania, are subject to the governance of the Kigoma Immigration Office, the more parochial governance, detached from the international community. So while Dar es Salaam has had financial incentives not to forcibly return those already recognized as refugees, 
there had been a lack of any similar incentives at the regional level, and local and regional electoral politics has determined that regional commissioners and district commissioners have had a desire to return many of these people. So the international community's response has been to have very significant influence over the national government in DAR because of international assistance, but almost no influence over the regional commissioners controlling that immediate border, giving rise to this paradox. Very briefly, the final cases I look at relate to Somalis leaving south-central Somalia. Um, and as is well known, there have obviously been a series of refugee movements since 1991 around sort of four broad phases that are documented by Anna Lindley and others. The final phase of this is sort of the one I'm most interested in, which is the famine and drought um, in 2011, where large numbers of people crossed the border. And of course, it's very hard to say what the cause of that flight was. It's been very mixed up between persecution, generalized violence, and famine and drought. But it's relatively clear that the most immediate cause of people fleeing in 2011 wasn't necessarily persecution under the 51 Convention, but was a set of environmental drivers that were strongly connected to those movements. And yet the Kenyan response, under quite a lot of pressure from the international community, wasn't just to see these people as illegal migrants. It was to continue with the kind of response it had before, which was a prima facie, on-the-surface recognition of people as refugees under the OAU Convention, based on the idea that if you're from South Central Somalia, you are likely to be a refugee if you're on the other side of the border. Now, of course, what happens subsequent to the famine and drought is that there really is, there really are some big compromises um, in this. There's a sort of tipping point as the numbers get greater as the number of people in the Dadaab refugee camps gets over half a million. So the government tries to close its border, but backs off um, refooling people under pressure from the international community. So new debates emerge on whether to round up refugees in Nairobi's eastly area and force them back to Somalia, whether to create internal safe havens in the Kismayo area of south-central Somalia. The other compromise that ends up being made is that throughout the whole period, even since the early 1990s, the Kenyan government's response has been one of humanitarian containment. Sort of variation on Martin Rue's idea, his idea, there's been a trade-off between rights and numbers. They may have allowed higher numbers of people to stay in the country, but the level of rights available has been quite limited. So why the, firstly, generally open response, but equally that gradual tipping point over time? Well, from a government perspective, there have been strong incentives from the international system. The government has required international legitimacy. It's wanted international assistance. That's led to leverage and the kind of shuttle diplomacy that Guterres, as High Commissioner, was able to do in 2011. But on the other hand, at the national level, from relatively early acceptance and tolerance, particularly in the northeastern province area, there's been growing politicisation. And particular individuals with aspirations for national elections, like the late George Saitoti as Home Affairs Minister and Yusuf Haji as Defence Minister, have tried to escalate a rhetoric of control and a rhetoric of securitisation. The international community's response since the 90s has been one of supporting openness. There's been a real delegation by the government of protection to UNHCR, seeing refugees as UNHCR's problem. That's opened up financial influence and a degree of leverage. But I think this latter period of gradual shift is an interesting one that might tell us something about some of the limitations 
of a more open stretching of the purpose and function of the regime. Finally, in terms of Somalis in Yemen, as with the case in Kenya, large numbers of south-central Somalis have crossed the border, in this case crossing uh, the Gulf of Aden. And many have crossed from Basaso or Djibouti in ways that have been documented by particularly the regional mixed migration secretariat and task force. And like Kenya, Yemen has adopted a prima facie response, recognizing all South Central Somalis as though they were refugees because of where they come from. But as a non-African country, it hasn't been signatory to the 1950, sorry, the OAU convention. So it's been prima facie recognition under the 51 convention, still using the 51 convention as the legal instrument of recognition. So it's been relatively open and inclusive, but there's been very limited assistance. Only a tiny minority <coughs> are in uh, the main refugee camp, and the majority are living as urban refugees in areas like Albacetine, in Aden, but also elsewhere. One of the things that's fascinating about this case is the massively contrasting response to Somalis versus Ethiopians. Somalis have been predominantly accepted on a prima facie basis, whereas Ethiopians have had a more restrictive response, often being forced to go through refugee status determination and increasingly deported back to Ethiopia. Um, many of the Ethiopians are obviously Romo, or to a lesser extent, Ogaden, and that difference is in stark contrast to the reasons for flight. In 2011, the Regional Mixed Migration Secretariat conducted a survey of Somalis and Ethiopians arriving in Yemen, and they found that they self-identified as having many of the same reasons for flight, famine and drought, and yet the response in Yemen has been a relatively stark contrast of um, one response of relative openness for the Somalis, but much more restrictive responses towards the Ethiopians. The question is, is sort of why has that happened? Well, arguably there's been a more xenophobic environment towards Ethiopians and Coptic Christians than there has towards Somalis, for whom there have been similar um, linguistic or ethnic commonalities. Um, and there have been very different international pressures. There's been a strong bilateral relationship between Yemen and Ethiopia that's put pressure on the government in a very different way. From the international community's perspective, um, UNHCR, I think, has been quite compromised to work evenly across those populations. It's had a strong working relationship with the Ethiopian government, and less so, obviously, with the limited apparatus in Mogadishu. Um, and there's also been growing international concern to control mixed migration that's really led to a sort of a discourse, a narrative of seeing Yemen as one of the sort of fault lines in movement by Somalis to Europe, leading to a sort of a gradual shift towards control, but one that has been still tempered by this prima facie recognition. So out of all of that empirical material, what, if any, patterns can we observe about the explanations for this divergence in response? Well, the story I've tried to tell is to make a claim that what determines this response isn't international law per se, that international law only gets us so far in understanding how the refugee regime and international institutions respond in practice. And what's actually more significant, or appears to be more significant, is national politics and local politics. Where law allows discretion, governments take that discretion, and what matters is the incentives on elites within the government to respond in particular ways. 
that where there are positive incentives by the international system and positive incentives from domestic politics, the regime will stretch. Where there are negative incentives that go against um, stretching and adaptation, either from international politics or domestic politics, you won't get a stretching and adaptation. And so, again, as with sort of any slightly parsimonious explanation, this is slightly shoehorning a lot of empirically complex material into a basic framework. But that's the basic pattern that seems to emerge, that law only does so much, and actually it's the incentives on elites that determine how that ambiguity is navigated. So in conclusion, there are basically three quite simple conclusions that come out of this. The most simple is the first. There's massive inconsistency in responses to people fleeing human rights deprivations. There's massive variation from stretching and inclusive adaptation through to people being rounded up, detained, and deported. In the absence of legal precision, secondly, it's national politics that shapes outcomes. And that national politics can and needs to be unpacked and understood if we're to think about how international law works. We need to understand the political economy and the gatekeepers at the national level and the local level. Thirdly, one of my core theoretical conclusions is that if we're going to think about the way in which international organizations and institutions work, it's not good enough just to look at what happens at the so-called global level. They don't just exist in abstraction in Geneva or New York, but they adapt and play out in different ways at national and local levels. So if we want to think about areas where international institutions need to be reformed, we've got at least three different levels. We don't just have to reform international agreements, as the debate often is, how do we supplement the 1951 convention? we can go up through different levels of governance. We can first ask, what happens at the level of implementation? How are these treaties and structures interpreted, negotiated, and adapted at the local level? Only then, when there are still gaps, do we need to think about institutionalization. What can be done to enable governments to sign, ratify, or incorporate legislation in their frameworks? And only then is it worthwhile going up to this abstract global level and saying, what's really missing? from the core treaties. And in a way, that's a shift from how international relations usually thinks about international institutions as abstract, removed, and as though the solution to these challenges is to renegotiate the 1951 Convention.